This is Transistor.fm. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Honey Badger. When you need your code to be reliable, Honey Badger helps with uptime monitoring and contextualized error messages to save you time and money. Get started on Honey Badger today and get a 30% discount by mentioning the Ruby Blend when you sign up at HoneyBadger.io. Hey, Andrew, how you doing? Doing well. How's it going, Eric? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. How are you doing, Nate? I am doing really good. Welcome to another episode of the Ruby Blend, where we talk about Ruby and all things kind of surrounding the Ruby ecosystem, other tech. And today we want to welcome Eric Berry as a new panelist on the Ruby hey. Blend. Yeah, welcome, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So for those that don't know, Eric, Eric was the founder of Code Fund and uh, has worked with both Andrew and I for quite a while now. He's worked with me at several different companies for a long time, but we all worked on Code Fund together for the last two years or three years for Eric. Yeah, it's probably worth mentioning that Ron is not going away, but he had a little fire come up at work and he had to drop out at the last second. So Ron's not going away. Ron will be back hopefully next week with us. Yeah, we're sad. We're sad he's not with us today. Yeah, Ron's a great guy. I'm excited to be here. So I wanted to approach today, and we talked a little bit before the show of the details of what we wanted to focus on, but in this episode, and, and uh, because I'm new, I'd like to, to kind of be that third person and talk to you both about some of your experiences. And, and the questions that I'm going to ask are very leading because I know backgrounds that led to certain decisions, but you know, following your career, Nate, has been really, really a, a fun experience. You and I have worked together off and on, you know, for, for over 10 years. And even before we officially knew each other, we, we were basically friends through code. So I used to work at a company and built out a product that, that you took over right after I left. And it's been interesting. And I've always said, Nate, that you are, you know, your, your talents and your ability to create amazing libraries and tools will eventually lead you to be discovered. And, and thankfully, lately, I, I think that you have been, and I'm, and I'm excited that the, the light's finally showing on you. So for the listeners that don't know, Nate and I worked for a company before that was a, an education lead generation company. When I came to work for Nate, he had built out a really amazing solution that, that used one of those tools that Ruby provides that is perhaps not often used. And that is, uh, that's the metaprogramming side. I remember back in those days when metaprogramming used to be kind of exciting and, and wow, this is great that we can write code that can write code that can write code and, and all that stuff. But I think a lot of people avoid the metaprogramming because of the, the complexity and almost how scary it is. I'd love to hear your background in metaprogramming, what the problems were with that company that you solved through metaprogramming and the way you solved it. Yeah, I should probably preface that and say that metaprogramming is a very sharp tool that's available to Rubyists and, and any other language that people use that supports metaprogramming. It's, it's a very power, powerful tool, but yeah, as with most sharp tools, you need to be very careful and thoughtful about when you use it. When we applied it at that company initially, and that was was that like eight years ago, 10 years ago? No, it's probably nine, nine or eight, eight or nine years ago. Like the original metaprogramming Ruby book had come out. And, and so like 
you know, most enthusiasts, as they kind of get their hands on a new, on a new tool, it's like a new toy and, and you start to overuse it a bit. And I would say we probably took it a bit too far at that company, but it did solve real problems for us. So, I mean, at a very high level, essentially what we did as we created a, a structure that would dynamically build out uh, a series of like form templates, essentially, uh, instructions on how to build and validate a form because we were generating leads. And, and then that would standardize into a common standard and we could transform that into any other uh, type of data structure that was needed for the, the clients we were selling those leads to. It was very powerful. We put a lot of that into the database. And then at runtime, when the app started up, it would essentially construct the runtime based on data that was in the database and some of the metaprogramming that we had done. And then kind of just assembled it all as the app booted up. It got a little crazy because we added some metaprogramming capability where essentially we would we were allowing folks to write rules and some code DSL type code in the database itself so you could have a system admin that wasn't a programmer essentially change and modify the rules at runtime which was really powerful and it allowed the that team and the business itself to move fairly quickly without having to go to the dev team to have new features baked in into the platform they could just go without permission and start adding, you know, the, the requirements and needs that they had to drive the business forward, which worked well, but we, it got abused and we had to kind of wrangle that back in. What, uh, what aspect of that would you have changed looking back at how everything went through? Would you have created that database level programming layer if you were to do it over again? No. In fact, we grew that. It's kind of interesting. The, the project evolved. And right before I left the company, we had about a, a six-month uh, project to kind of clean all of that up. And one of the major goals there was to get rid of, of a lot of those customized rules that lived in the database because we needed a, a more concrete... It, it was almost as bad. I mean, as it, it got so abused that it was almost as bad as like just evaling like a string of Ruby code. <laughs> and so... It was incredibly flexible and powerful, but once, once it got into the hands of a few maybe less disciplined employees, it, it got a little crazy. So we had to wrangle that back in and formalize that. So yes, I would pull that back and not give quite as much power to, to folks not in the code because they were starting to violate like some of the standards uh, that we, we wanted in place for the business. And so we, we made a concerted effort to get rid of the database metaprogramming uh, piece of it. However, the the, the classes that would still assemble, they would assemble in a metaprogramming way in the code itself, on the Ruby code. How does that work? Metaprogramming in general. So for example, there were different versions of some of the templates that we had that might have had different rules. And so you could, you could assemble just the rules. You could structure the code in a way where as a particular form template evolved over time, you may have uh, two versions of, of a similar form with slightly different rules that needed to be applied. Well, you could you can implement the base and then slurp in those rules. And those rules were still coming out. Like once we got rid of the eval type code that was in the database, we would still allow them to define the fields, what the data type of the field was, what validation rules needed to apply. They could also specify dependent fields. All that kind of stuff was still living in the database, but it was in a highly structured format. We would pull that out of the database and then assemble the code at runtime based off of the properties that were saved there. The thing that really got us was allowing them to, you know, 
write programming logic in the database. So we backed out of that piece. Yeah, that was a, that was a really fun time. And it was, it was amazing to see how much power was there with that system. I, I do remember the hiccups that we had and the frustrations that we had with, you know, with the other side of that sharp blade. Can you give any examples or any other times in your career where you found that metaprogramming has come across as being like a really great tool that you were able to use? Well, I mean, one of the virtues of a developer is laziness, right? And I think it was Larry Ellison that said that. But it's not, it's not laziness in the, in the actual sense of being lazy. It's, it's being um, someone that is less tolerant of inefficiencies, right? And metaprogramming actually allows you to do that. So if you find yourself writing a lot of redundant code, there may be a way to metaprogram your, yourself out of that. So if you've got a lot of repetitive boilerplate that's getting written, metaprogramming is a good candidate to eliminate a lot of that boilerplate. Andrew, have you had any experiences with that? A little bit, but I was going to say, did you actually define metaprogramming? Because I don't think we did. We just kind of rolled into talking about it. And that's probably something we should be very clear about the definition of, because I don't think a lot of people really understand other than like from a very like broad view or if, if, if that, like what metaprogramming is. Yeah. You want to take a stab at defining that, Eric? Sure. Yeah. And I think I learned about metaprogramming back from one of the uh, books or tutorials by one of the, I can't remember his name, but he runs Prague Prog, a super nice guy. And uh, yeah, I learned it from the Prague Prog people. And so metaprogramming is when you're able to write code that will generate other code in the runtime that can be executed. So for example, if you wanted to have a dynamic class that might represent something that has a certain structure, you could define the structure and then have metaprogramming generate those classes that could be then referenced within, within the Ruby runtime. That's how I understand it. Anything to add that you guys would add? I would just, you know, to really simplify it, it's just code that writes other code, right? Yeah. In, in, in a compiled language, it's a, I mean, you, you can still metaprogram like in a language like C Sharp, but it's more of a code generator. You would essentially write a generator that would emit essentially the, the assets that would compile later, right? I, I, I've metaprogrammed that way in, in compiled languages. Before landing in Ruby, the only difference is with Ruby is that it all assembles at runtime. So it's a little more abstract and maybe a bit harder to follow. So I, I worked on a project that I think, Nate, you're familiar with, where it's another lead generation tool. But this one was more of a tool that brought in leads, but also would turn around and, and send out those leads for resale across a giant ping tree of, of different clients. And in this code, Initially, I was writing these what I call drivers for all of these different clients. Essentially, it's a custom piece of code that works with certain companies where they could accept data in a certain format. And then this code would have a process of basically saying, here's the request. Do you accept it? If it's accepted, it would turn around and create another post back that would uh, provide all the data. If it's, if it's rejected, then it would just stop there. But as this company grew, these number of drivers that I would have to build would grow and grow and grow. And eventually we broke out and started building into different verticals completely. So initially it was healthcare and then it got into other things such as mortgages and stuff like that. So 
similar to the problems that we were solving in one-on-one, we had to create this very dynamic structure of data that we were able to take one source and convert it to many different formats. The way I ended up doing that was I used very heavily JSON schema. So JSON schema is super, super powerful. It's, a, it's just a defined way to define JSON that specifies what a data structure looks like. So for example, this JSON schema might include you know, a bunch of um, objects inside it, which might, you know, one be an email, and then that email would say it's a string or maybe an email type. It could include the restrictions for that data. Like, for example, if it's gender, maybe it has to be a capital letter versus a lowercase letter, or maybe there's age requirements that are there. So it really is a, it's, it's a data filtering and, and packaging system to take a certain amount of data and wrap it a certain way. And then I was able to create these drivers dynamically where it was more of a generic driver. And I had this generic driver in this project. It would take the JSON schema and it would match it up with the criteria that we would specify from the database. So I had an interface that would allow you to build out what that data looked like, or at least the way that it was transferred across. And so in combination with the schema and this record, I was able to create a dynamic object that represented that data. It turned out really, really well. It saved a ton of time. I think that's a really good example of the right time to use metaprogramming. I have found, though, that the majority of time, it's, it's the wrong time to use metaprogramming. Because <laughs> as you said, it requires a, a tremendous level of discipline. Yeah, I mean, one, to take the uh, other example that we did originally, it, it was pretty interesting because what we did was we hoisted up the active record validators and made those uh, available to our, our form creators in the company through this internal admin tool. And, and so they could specify all the standard active record validations and we would store that metadata in the database. And then we would assemble, essentially we would construct the model object that represented that, that form behind the scenes at runtime. And once we pulled all of the like eval type DSL code out of the database and it was really just, here's this field, you know, the first name and it has to be this many characters or whatever. Once that got put in place and the DSL was removed, that opened up some pretty interesting opportunities for us. And we started to move away from Rails itself, from Active Record. We took the same data structure and all the data that was already in the database, and we used Rails, interestingly enough, to slurp the data out and build a JavaScript object that implemented all of those same validators except it was a little bit more powerful because we could run that JavaScript object that represented the form both on the server and on the client. So then because we could pull it to the client, then we could dynamically build the UI directly on top of it in JavaScript on the client side with client side templating and everything. And then we also changed it so that the validations could run asynchronously. So if there was a validator that needed to hit a third-party service and then come back and tell you whether or not it was valid, or if there was a dependent field that required a third-party service hit, we could do all of those types of things. It was really powerful. And it all started with the Rails side. I mean, Rails kind of gave us the structure necessary to capture that data, to say, here's the standard set of validations. Here's the types of fields you can put on the form. Once that structure was in place, we then were able to take those essentially conventions and apply them elsewhere with custom solutions in different languages. It was pretty cool. So you mentioned the Rails standards, and that kind of triggered in my mind a project that you started uh, quite a while ago, which is literally Rails standards. 
And that project is something that I've been referencing for a long time. It's just a, a, a readme on GitHub that has just some very common best practices and standards for developing in Ruby. You've really held that tightly for a long time. And I would even say you've, you're one of the, um, I wouldn't say an extreme DHH disciple, but you are definitely following the conventions of Rails. Tell us a little bit about that Rails standard package. What came of that? And then also, I'd love to dig in a little bit and ask you, like, what are people doing right and wrong in today's world with Rails? Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. So the Rails standards uh, project that I created was just, you know, learnings, you know, from the early days of Rails. And I think the first one I set up was for Rails 3. And I only updated that through Rails 4. So it's, it's pretty old. One of the things that had the most staying power out of that, though, was just how to structure your models. There's a series of comments there talking about where, you know, where do you put your includes? Where do you put your extends? Where do you put kind of the high-level configuration versus validations versus relations? All of that sort of stuff. So it kind of gives you a standard template so that you can organize your models. So when you drop into a model file, it's well-structured kind of top to bottom. So you can vertically scan it. And you essentially know where all the things belong and where they are going to live in the model. That's proven really helpful. And that's had a lot of staying power. You actually, there's another gem that actually will get you that data as well called Model Probe. And with Model Probe, you can actually just include Model Probe into uh, your development environment and then emit through a series of rake tasks. Or even when you're introspecting in a price session or something, you can introspect and look at the the model structure, the, the schema structure behind the models you're looking at. But Model Probe will even emit and print out kind of a, an empty shell of a, of a database model for you based on the schema that's in the database. So, but it adheres to that same type of standard that I've documented in the Rails Standards Project. I, think I, I do recommend people check out the Model Probe. Uh, it's at hopsoft slash model underscore probe. The way that you define these controllers or these classes, you can see the very, very bottom, you've really set up a pattern of readability. I used to work for a company that had some models that were 3,000 lines long. And what I found so fascinating working and learning from you is how well you are able to determine where things should belong, how things should be included, and you're a very, very strong user of concerns. Do you mind talking a little bit about how you've used concerns and maybe when a concern would be the way to go versus keeping in line or doing something else? Yeah, I think the concerns are, are somewhat of a hot topic in like Ruby, especially Rails architecture, right? Some people like them, some people don't like them. In my view, concerns get you, essentially they solve like, the 80% of the problem that people want to solve with service objects and, you know, other abstractions that you may stick into a Rails application. And that 80% really is just organizing your code in a way that is uh, understandable to the team and is maintainable. Isolating code that is logically grouped uh, together into a single file, it it gets you about 80% of the way there, even though it all assembles at runtime. And technically you're not like, architecturally pure as, you know, as some people may want you to be, but you've solved 80% of the problem. And sometimes that's good enough, right? And so the biggest thing for me with concerns is thinking of 
of how to lump that behavior in and, and how to describe it. Because with programming, naming is one of the most difficult things to get right. And if you can name things correctly, and, and I'll harp on names like all day long, like I'll, I'll sit with a thesaurus for two hours before I name a concern because it's important to, because you're, what you're doing is you're establishing the pattern of how people after you are going to think logically about the structure, the purpose, all of that stuff. So if you've named it correctly, you've helped guide the thinking for everybody involved in the project after, after you've named that thing. And so using, you know, very descriptive words for your concerns as you think of your, you get your model, which is your noun. And now how, what are the capabilities that that entity does? Like what are the things that a user might do, right? They may have a whole series of authentication related logic that you would stick into the user object. Now, again, that may not be architecturally pure, but if you're going to put it into a concern, you could have an authenticatable concern that you then pull into the user object or into the user model. And then you start to segment the behaviors like similar behaviors together into similarly named, you know, purposefully named concerns and it starts to make sense. And then at the top of the file, if you've organized your model where you know all those includes kind of live together, you can go up and see what all the behaviors are that are extending that model. CodeFund is a good example to go see. Hey, do you want to start your own podcast? Head over to Transistor and use my coupon, transistor.fm slash Justin. You'll get 15% off your first year of podcast hosting. How we did that at CodeFund. One of the things I really like about how we structure the code at CodeFund as well is things were always alphabetical. It was always easy to find things because a gem file was listed alphabetically, includes were listed alphabetically, like, uh, extensions were listed alphabetically. And it's an interesting pattern that I really haven't seen elsewhere. And surprisingly, I guess not surprisingly, but it really has saved time as a developer because when you're adding stuff, you know exactly where everything goes. And when you're trying to look for stuff, you know exactly where to find it. Let's face it, your code is going to have errors, even code written by an amazing 10X developer such as yourself. When bad things happen, it's nice to know Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron monitoring into a single easy to use platform, saving you time and your cash. The Ruby Blend listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention the Ruby Blend when signing up and they'll apply the discount to your account. No credit card required. Thanks to our friends at Honey Badger for sponsoring the show. I'd like to give you a little bit of a break, Nate. I have a lot more questions for you, but I'd like to turn the table on Andrew and, and talk about a couple of things. Andrew, for those that are listening as well, Andrew's a gifted, gifted mid-level programmer right now that is on the fast track to just being a superstar. And I don't say that lightly. Andrew is a super, super talented guy. And I'm, I've been very lucky to, lucky to work with him. He carries that passion that I think is a necessity to, to being a successful software developer. As I imagine most developers have experienced, I'm often asked, how do I become a developer? How do I get involved? And, you know, early in my career, I was very engaging with people like that, very excited to help them. But what I realized is there's a definite indicator of success or not, or, or the future of their success or not, based on how eager they are to learn and explore and hack on the projects that they have. And 
Andrew, I think you've been a really good example of someone who has that hunger, has a desire to be part of the community, has a desire to, to learn and grow and, and open source and all that stuff. So all of that being said, I, I, and I wanted to add that to this conversation because I'm coming in from, as a third party and I want the listeners to know who they're really listening to. So Andrew, one of the things that we've gone into multiple times and, and uh, I've led you down a, a bad path possibly a couple of times is the uh, templating engine within Rails. And of course, ERB is a standard templating engine and, and we're all very used to it and it's very easy to read, although it can be extremely verbose. What other, what other templating engines have you used? And maybe you can talk about like the pros and cons of them. And then maybe after that, we can dig into experiences of what happens when, when you, like what type of commitment is required? Well, number one, thank you, Eric. I'm literally blushing. Number two, so if you've ever listened to Remote Ruby, it's kind of an ongoing joke between Jason Charns and Chris Oliver and myself about use, picking ERB, Slim, or Hamel. And I say ongoing joke because for the longest time, I've always I've been very pro-Hamel, pro-Slim. I like using them. And I was using them prior to joining CodeFund and prior to working with Nate. And when I met Nate, Nate convinced that I... Not that I was wrong, but that the benefits of ERB were greater than the benefits of Hamel, especially, or uh, Hamel in the specific case of, I was very much in favor of using Hamel at the time. But for the reasoning of, especially for an open source project, it, it definitely can limit the ability for others to contribute. It can also limit the ability for you to work with front-end designers, for instance, maybe hire people who just work on your front-end. And if it doesn't look like HTML, then you know that limits their ability to contribute, which is something they do at Basecamp, where their front end designers are in there writing ERB, and because it's so close to HTML that they can they can kind of do that. So I was very pro Slim and Hamel. I still like them very much, especially and when this kind of came up at CodeFund, Nate and I had already gone through the ringer of uh, a slimmer Hamel or ERB, and Nate was very pro ERB, and he eventually kind of turned me to his way of thinking. And that's why it kind of became a joke from that point on. But when we started getting very heavy into components and view helpers at CodeFund, it kind of came up again because the views that I was tending to write were almost all Ruby. At some point, at some point they became almost all Ruby. And when you're writing mostly Ruby in your template files, then something like Slimmer Hamel is way, way nicer because the markup with ERB is just kind of, it's soup. It's just kind of like a disaster. It's hard to follow and it doesn't look very great. And especially with the verbosity that can kind of come with using view component, which it doesn't really bother me, but it, it is a little verbose in some areas like because you have to say render and then you have to give your component.new and pass your arguments if needed and then do a do block. And then, you know, so it, it kind of just tends to be a lot. And we talked about it again at CodeFund and this was right towards the end. And we, Eric had just started getting into the code a lot more and was of the opinion we should move to Slim. And I was, I was interested, but I was also like, I, I don't know what, what the commitment on this was going to be. So he and I kind of paired for a little bit and we were like, okay, what would it look like to convert CodeFund to Slim? Because much... I carry this philosophy in a lot of things, but 
I specifically was not willing to live in both worlds. It was like either we live in Slim or we live in Hamel because I feel I felt like a conversion from ERB to Slim was going to be long and drawn out and probably never get finished. And I was like, I don't want to live in both worlds. I want to live in one or the other. And if it's if we stay in ERB, then that's fine. But if we want to move to Slim, I want to move. So we looked into it and the Slim to or the ERB to Slim conversion tools out there, there are some, but they're not great. They're not always going to work and they're not always going to produce markup that you really like. So we didn't really find that that was going to be successful, that we were going to be able to just pump all our templates through and come out with Slim on the other end. Because we kind of looked at Hamel and Slim and Slim seems to be, has some better features, especially around, it's a little bit faster, I believe. And it also, it makes working with data attributes a little bit nicer, um, which is something we do a lot because we all work with stimulus. So that was why we chose Slim. But at the end of the day, I was like, this is not going to be worth it. The amount of time it's going to take to do this is not going to be worth it. And we could be spending our time doing other things. So that was kind of what we decided. Now we're working on a new thing right now. And right off the bat, I, I was like, well, Eric really liked working, was really wanting to work with Slim. So I converted the entire app to Slim right off the get-go. Now, the difference between this app and CodeFund is that CodeFund had Bootstrap, which is more component-based CSS classes. And Tailwind is a utility-based. So you kind of just ended up... It, it, it was harder to follow when I like looked at it and looked back. And the conversion didn't take that long. It was more kind of just like a challenge myself to see how long I could do it. It took me about an hour to convert a jumpstart app to Slim. And it, it wasn't that bad. I wasn't super thrilled with all the markup. But it didn't work as well with Tailwind. And especially because we were trying to bootstrap something, we, were, we didn't have as much components right off the bat. And our, our views weren't all Ruby like they had been at CodeFund. So yes, I, we converted it to Slim, but I made sure to do that in a very specific PR so that I, I don't want to say I had a feeling we might want to roll it back, but I wanted to prepare in case we did. So I converted to Slim and then we kind of looked at it and we were like, all right, no, we're going to stick with ERB. So... I like Slim and Hamel, but honestly, ERB is a tool that I feel like any Rails developer can use. And if you're trying to focus on speed, I I don't know. I think it might be the right tool. That's a great point. I, I think the the key part of why Slim didn't work is, as you said, uh, Tailwind is such a verbose, heavy class-driven approach to design. And for those that don't know Tailwind, Tailwind, you, you can easily add to your project, but instead of creating all of these style sheets in the back end, what you end up doing is you essentially design your styles using classes. And these classes follow a certain set of conventions and it's extremely, extremely powerful. I recommend anybody uh, to check it out. But Uh, When you're defining these, it's like you're stringing all of these different classes together. And in Hamel or SAS, all of those belong in the same line. And now, you know, I can look at one of the pages that we've converted. And and given all of the the classes that were added, it looks like just a giant page of text. Very few breaks. Very, you know, there are no opening and closing brackets. So it's extremely unreadable. And I do see the value of Slim, especially and Hamel, especially with those components. I think it adds a lot to it, but it's probably overkill in most cases. I don't know of many companies that are actually have that as their default template language. 
Yeah, uh, but kudos to to those maintainers that are maintaining those projects. I, I know that they're being used, and I think that it's not just. I mean, it's not just in the Ruby world. There's Pug for for Python and other languages that have very similar syntax. I think that Tailwind is the factor that really, really, really made it not work in this scenario. Would you Would you agree? Yeah, probably. I mean, and we could have done something, but like because with Tailwind you can you can abstract classes into your CSS, so. We could have created like a, a CSS class called card and then just use the Tailwind apply rule to basically choose all the Tailwind we wanted to have defined by that class. But that kind of defeats the point of using Tailwind. The other thing with Tailwind is that they use a, uh, a backslash in some of their classes. So for their width and height classes, they have W-1-2, which stands for width like a half width item, but you can't use the backslash in Slim. And I assume not in Hamel because it's a reserved character. It's for a, a non, it's for like a continuing line that you want to like uh, a break, like a break line essentially. So I had to basically change one of the rules in the Tailwind config to map the, the backslash command to be something else. When I think I chose like an underscore. So all of ours were like width, dash one underscore two. And so that kind of, that didn't feel great right out of the bat. And yeah, because in abstracting all the classes into CSS wasn't like, now you're losing like the main benefit of Tailwind. So what's the point of doing that? And I think components are really like a great way to handle this in Rails. But like, if you're trying to bootstrap something and get something up quickly, you know, that, that can be great for that. But it just, it, it didn't make sense. And like, it, it, yeah, I think it's the TLDR of your uh, question is yes. I don't think it worked because we were using Tailwind. I think we could have made it work, but I think we decided that it wasn't worth uh, the time investment to do that right now. That's a pretty interesting observation that utility first CSS makes you know white space significant templating like Slim and Hamel uh, a bit more untenable. I'd be curious to hear what the community thinks about that as a general observation. I will, yeah. I will say that rendering like view components, the GitHub project view components inside of ERB is not, is not very, it, it looks pretty ugly, but maybe, maybe helpers are the answer there. Yeah, they could be, but then I don't know. They're ugly, but like how ugly? Like, I mean, at the end of the day, I started to think like, how much does this really bother me? And the answer is not a lot. It could look better. And I think the reason that we know it could look better is the only reason it kind of in the back of our minds. So I've just decided that I don't, it doesn't bother me the way they look in ERB anymore. And I think as long as you're willing to just accept that, then I don't know. You can, I think, I think at the end of the day, for with where we're at, I mean, you, you both, I believe, are pretty hard. I know Nate is hardcore ERB. I, I would consider Eric that you've probably done more ERB in your life as well. So I don't know. I, I felt like the three of us could move faster with ERB, and I think that was the main reason. But at the end of the day, yeah, the the amount of classes that Tailwind, I mean, it, it's a it's a benefit, but it, it just doesn't look as good. It's hard to it's harder to follow in Slim. I know we're getting close to end on time. I do have a couple of more questions that I, I'd love to talk about. The first one, Nate, I want to come back to you. You and I have have battled a little bit, maybe not battled, but for a long time, I did not fall as well into the camp of, of doing things 
in the most conventional way. And that was very true when it came to API development. Now, Rails provides RESTful programming and a pattern for RESTful development, which is, you know, by design intended to provide the maximum flexibility, which means that you should be able to use the same code to generate, you know, internal controller calls and external API requests. One of the problems, or I guess one of the shortcuts that I used to always do, and, and you kind of beat it out of me, is, is creating non-standard RESTful uh, endpoints and controllers. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and why you're so staunch in, in keeping it so clean. And maybe, maybe explain first of like what your pattern is that you use and why. Before we delve into that, I just wanted to revisit really quick the, the concerns, just so people kind of um, have an idea of, of how we named those. Like, and, and we also introduced concerns on models and on controllers or, or any other top-level you know, directory structure inside of our Rails application where we needed to pull uh, common behavior out into something that was either reusable or we just wanted to package it up together. That's an ability you're giving to an entity, uh, a defined entity in your system, whether that's a controller or a model or whatever. And so some of the names, like because you're giving them an ability, often we would name those with able on the end. So for example, some of our, our concerns were colorable, eventable, full text, searchable, imageable, impressionable. That's the types of names that we were giving those concerns. And, we, and it's very important, like to go back to naming, that's, that's an incredibly important aspect of, of what we do as programmers. So I just wanted to kind of revisit that and give an example there. But to go shift over to API design, if you subscribe, now not everybody subscribes to the RESTful way of building APIs. You know, there's, there's a lot of other variants, whether it's RPC or GraphQL now. There's a lot of options that you can go, but if you're going to use HTTP, REST sits very well on top of HTTP and Rails provides the mechanics and, and some guidance to kind of like the generators in Rails will give you a standard RESTful set. The reason I think that that's important to adhere to that is it makes navigating your project so simple as the project grows in size and scope and complexity. If everything is RESTful in the app, there's never a question of where a method is defined, where this behavior is going to live, and that sort of thing. Most people don't have the discipline to, to keep their apps restful because it does feel kind of wasteful. For example, if you're adding a role, so for example, let's do a really simple example. We've got users and we've got roles. We're going to add a role to a user. Well, one way you could do that RPC style would be to just add a method called add role to the user endpoint and then give it a new route, invoke that. But essentially, you're, what you're doing then is you're starting to muddy the waters. The next developer that comes in is going to say, well, wait a minute, that's not RESTful. So let me go add a create method on the user role entity or the resource. And so now you've got two implementations of the same thing. And then another developer comes and joins the team later and they want to do it from the role side. So now you have three methods all doing the same thing. Whereas if you stuck to REST, there's only one place that logic um, is ever going to live. Using that pattern, what would you say the outcome has been? What's the cost, uh, the upfront cost that you see and the reward long term? Yeah, I would say that it's, it's a bit difficult because you have to step back from oftentimes, like if you're, if you're doing something on the user object and working in the user controller and you're like, oh, I just have to add a role 
to the user. Because your mindset is, is kind of centered on user in that moment, it feels natural to just write, you know, add role to user. And, but you need to pause and step back and say, well, if this was a resource, what is the resource? What, what's actually happening? Well, we're creating a relationship between the user table and the role table. So we're, we're creating a user role. That's, that's our resource. User role is the resource and create is the method, right? But it doesn't feel natural when you're, you've got your blinders on and you're, you're you know, knee deep in working on the user. You have to pause. So it, does, it will slow you down a little bit until you shift your thinking into, into thinking this way. Like everything is a noun-based resource that you're operating against. And where it starts to feel a little bit inefficient is when you have to pause and think about that. But then you say, well, maybe create is the only method I'm going to support on user role. Maybe, maybe we don't need delete. We don't need edit or any of those other things. Maybe we don't need to list them out and show them or have an index page or any of those things. So it feels a little bit wasteful to create the controller and the route and all the things necessary to, to support that for just one simple create method. However, it's worth it. It's worth it in cognitive cost later. When you come back and say, where, where does this behavior live? Is it on user? Is it on role? Is it a separate resource? Did we hang it off of some other entity? Is it defined in all those places? That's, that's where you pick up the savings. I found that as well. And I'm very glad that you taught me that. Uh, there's one more topic that I'd love to dig into, but I, I actually think that it might be better for another podcast episode. And I think what I'd like to get into, and this is maybe a teaser for another show, is, is talking about componentizing Rails projects. One of the companies that I've been talking to uses a combination of React and Rails. So they use, uh, I think, the React on Rails Ruby gem or, or one of those Ruby gems. And, and the reasoning behind that is very, very interesting, which I'd love to get into and discuss possibly what options there are within Ruby and, and maybe discuss the viability of, of introducing a, a third-party or a front-end framework such as React or Vue just to manage the components within the application. But that's definitely a big topic that I think we're all very passionate about and have experience in and would love to d- dig in a little bit more. I don't have anything else. If you guys have anything else to talk about, that's great. If not, I, I'm happy to just wrap this up. Yeah, I think if we, if we broached another topic at this stage, we, we probably have another can of worms to get into. So I'm, I'm happy to call it a show today as well. Yep, I am happy to. All I'm going to say is if you still haven't checked out Bridgetown RB, that's my plug. Well, good deal. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. Talk to you later. Bye. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.